The in-studio videotaped version of this podcast is available on YouTube. Just type in David Trapella at A Quiet Place. Please be sure and hit the subscribe button and ring the bell for future notifications. Shh. It's time to let go. Release the burdens brought on by life when you simply want to be free. You're a blinding beam of light and you deserve to be free. You're always welcome here. It's time to be quite honest. Good afternoon. I'm Sarah Bush. And today we're going to do something unique in this podcast. We're speaking in a common language that has to do with special women doing special things. So I'm welcoming the Women's American History Club, along with all the others that are listening to this podcast. But we're going to do it in a different way. We're going to do a digital resurrection of Grace Hopper. So give me just a second to see if we can bring her in with a voice saying, Grace, Grace, are you out there? Oh, I think she's coming in. Hello. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Hello. How are you today? I'm good. I'm very good. Good. It's unusual to be back here, you know, but I'm 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 doing okay. Well, you know, I think that the gift in you coming back today is more important to the people that don't know your gifts to the world and how it's now showing up in even a grander way. But to know all the things that you actually did in history that unfortunately we don't learn about in the history books unless we dig in and find qualified people like your life coach to bring you to life. So I want to say welcome Grace Hopper. And I want you to know that in the conversation that we're having around the gifts, I want you to tell your story, not as um, someone that is uh, truly wanting to tout themselves, because there's nothing in your history that tells me you ever did that. You were a much more graceful woman in your efforts to change the world. So to the audience, give us some history about who this incredible woman is called Grace Hopper. Well, when you talk about um, changing the world, I, I didn't really know that I was going to have that kind of influence. I think my parents were surprised and did not think about that when I was taking everything in the house apart and putting it back together again. I had done every clock in the house and the clocks next door and all the clocks and put them back together and my mother was quite puzzled and tried to limit me to just one but you know I did them all but she had no clue that that would catapult me into mathematics and engineering and take me to the places that I was able to go you know I was born in 1906. Now that was a long time before Oklahoma was even a state. I was born in New York City and um, I went to, to do all my schooling there and then I went to um, uh, Vassar. And at Vassar there weren't very many women there and most of the women there were just thinking about getting married and maybe they were going to teach mathematics in elementary school. I had no interest in teaching. Uh, that was the furthest thing from my mind. I actually wanted to be an actuary, an actuary. But I did uh, tutor in math and physics and um, and I was, I was good at it, but I just didn't want that day-to-day -day grind with those children. It was just not what I had in my mind for my future. Uh, I did graduate 
1928, and I did graduate with honors in physics and math. So that was taking me where I thought I should go, but I didn't know exactly where that was. <laughs> you know, yeah. to interrupt, I have to say, Grace, that during the time that you graduated, because you graduated with honors in physics and math, this wasn't a time for women to really stand out. This was no. a male-dominant world, especially in the math and sciences that you were in. Yes, I, I did a lot to try to blend in by wearing as, you know, manly clothes uh, and jackets and shirts with, but I did wear a skirt because that was required and low little heels, but I tried to uh, blend in and, um, but I did, I just could not be silenced. Uh, my voice was still very strong in terms of what I uh, could see that was going to happen in the future that we could maybe do pretty quickly. And if we didn't, it might take another 300 years to get to where I thought we could go in a little faster pace. Okay. I went to I went on to graduate school, you know, in masters, masters and PhD at Yale. Right. And um, you know, I, I I studied everything there because I was interested. You know, I did philosophy and bacteriology and zoology, and I, I just loved anything that had symbols and I was looking for everything and anything that had symbols and how they work together and how I could use those symbols to make language. So in addition to that you also studied languages. So the languages, yes. the courses that you took, even in astronomy and geology and and architecture, I just think that that's incredible that Every one of those elements, as I have studied your history, have to do with communication. Yes. And communication is all about symbols. Yes, all about symbols and numbers. Yes. And making symbols and numbers into uh, things that could be, be words. <laughs> so they could talk. And, you know, um, one of the things that I'm... Uh, that I'm noteworthy for is creating the uh, compiler. And the compiler was um, that thing that allowed uh, all of the different entities to talk to each other. Now, I might go back and say that my first job was working with um, Mark I and then the Mark II, and I am going to tell you that when I first saw that Mark One, I was scared to death. I it was like fourteen feet long, eight feet high, seven feet deep. It was pretty uh, pretty big, and uh, of course, in one of my speeches later in life. I told people that I thought probably in their lifetime they would see a computer that wasn't as big as that, that was smaller and could fit into offices and homes and that everyone would have them. But okay, uh, so that wasn't the case back in my day. We just had the big main frames. So I want to go back before that because I think that there's some interesting parts here that we're leaving out, one of which is that you had been married and you got divorced. And then it, there comes a whole period of time when you were a wave. And I think that those are both elements that are important to understand kind of how you've been coming up through the ranks. Can you talk on that? Um, yes. Um, I... I got married and um, 
the man was at Vassar and then was a professor at New York University and was a nice fellow. But after about nine years, uh, you know, quite frankly, he wasn't as smart as I was. And it just <laughs> got a little boring. And I had no interest in having children because I knew that would totally interrupt the, the future that I wanted to create for myself and for the world. So it became, why am I married if I'm not having children? And it just became kind of a, you know, just kind of a wart. And so I just, I just got out of that and I was better off for it, I think. I don't think all women have to be married and have children. It's nice for some people and, and some people are, some women are, are cut out for it, but not me. But the ironic part is at the time that you did that in 41 or I guess uh, 1945, that wasn't normal. Women didn't divorce. Oh, I know many people, you know, looked at me like I was a big failure. I couldn't make it work. And it was the big D-I-S-G-R-A-C-E, disgrace, right. uh, to get a divorce. But I just had to do it. Um, but that was on the heels of World War II, is that right? Yes. Is that how you came into being a wave? Yes, that uh, World War II really changed my life and my career path. I, I was certainly a patriot, and I wanted to help. I wanted to join the Navy, but because I was a woman, they said no. So I joined the WAVES. Now, that stood for Women for Voluntary Emergency Service. Right. And that was in 1942 when I was, and you know, the Navy rejected me because they said I didn't weigh enough. They said I was too small, too little, just couldn't be in the Navy. But it uh, wasn't long after that that the Navy was uh, glad to have me in 1943 uh, as a commissioned officer, Lieutenant Junior uh, J.G., and that started my career with the Navy. And yeah, for 42 also my years. my relationship with computers. Yeah, but that was a 42-year career with right. the Navy. Yeah. Yes. So I went on to be admiral and everything. I went on to be uh, a rear, uh, rear admiral, and um, that was quite a, a honor uh, at the time. Time and always, and certainly because I was a woman, and I think I was the, you know, I have to tell you, you know, I'm, I can't remember things like I used to, so sometimes <laughs> I need a little help or we just kind of have to skip over, but. That's um, okay. So let's, let's shift gears for a minute, because I want to talk about the COBOL. Okay. And for people that don't know what the COBOL stands for, it's common business-oriented language. And yes, so how did you get the COBOL off the ground? Well, as I mentioned before, I went to work on the Mark I and the Mark II. And the Mark II started having a lot of problems. And <laughs> one of the problems that we had uh, is that we found a little something in the in the mainframe that didn't need to be there. And I, being a woman, had tweezers. So we got in there with the tweezers, twi tweezers and we took out the moth, little bitty moth. And so it was able to work again. But that moth, I kept it in my logbook. And later on, they took that logbook and that little moth and put him in the American History Museum, I believe it was, where they put that little guy. And it was because of what you claimed when they found the bug. And that was <laughs> yeah, the I know where you're going. Yeah. Yeah, and we had a bug, and I said, uh, we need to debug the system, and I started 
talking about debugging, and um, that's where the word kind of caught on. I love that. That is just so wonderful. And you know, I'm remembering now, it wasn't the American History Museum, it was the National History Museum that has that log book and that little moth taped with scotch tape to one of the pages. That's incredible for you to even put that in that book, uh, <laughs> much less be classified as the person that debugged the computer. Right. Uh, and then after that, after that, I started working on the UNIVAC, uh, which was the first uh, commercial large-scale electronic computer. And it was there that I got the compiler and uh, got that idea and made that, which allowed the computer to tell the computer to manufacture its own program. And the computer started to, by my work, to recognize English commands into the machine code. Because before and, that, it was numeric. Yeah. Yeah. So I have but to tell there you there I, I formulated COBOL. Right. Um, and many of you may remember when you had home mortgages, the banks would send you a little, um, oh, about a third of a, of a piece of typing paper, and it would have all these little holes in it. And you would send that back with your payment, and they were able to credit it to your account. That was COBOL. Well, we're going to show a picture of that. it was huge at the time. Yeah, we'll have a picture on that here in the, in the podcast as well. But I, there are a couple of things I want to share. One, um, during this time that you were doing all of this, you were a major threat. Everything I read about what you did, you were a major threat to the ego of the men that thought, they had this under control. This is also where you created the Flowmatic or the English language based computer. And while talking to uh, my brother who used to be with IBM, he oh. talked about the complexity of the COBOL and how that worked in within IBM. But more importantly, I called my ex-husband because I knew the term COBOL. When I started doing my research, I kept going, that's got to be where I've heard this. So I called him and I said, help me understand where I know this name. And he said, Sarah, he said, I worked with it with the comptroller's office, the water development board here in Austin, the health department and the criminal justice system. And the gift in all of that was, he said that when Y2K came along, he had already given to the computer the capability of going beyond 2000. So the criminal justice system here in Texas was never affected by the computers shutting down because they didn't go past 2000. Uh -huh. So he himself saw what was going to happen digitally to COBOL if it wasn't corrected. But I also found that elementary kids are also learning the basic coding skills in school. Which I think, well, you know, you uh, have to well, pay attention to where you started and where it is now. That's how well, powerful. I, I mean, uh, a lot of people want to know if COBOL's dead. No. And the answer is no, because um, about 44% of the banks are still using COBOL. That's so exactly right. If you bank at Citibank or American Express or Wells Fargo, you're a part of that COBOL system. John Deere's on COBOL. The Air Force is on COBOL. The Department of Defense is on COBOL. And COBOL is alive and well except for one problem. And that problem is, is that all the people who know COBOL are either dead and gone like me or they're in their 80s a few in their 40s or 50s. So what is going to have to happen is people are going to have to study COBOL in school, just like you said, and they're gonna to have to get degrees in it in order to maintain and move forward with COBOL. So the only way COBOL can be dead is if all the people that know how to do it 
are dead and nobody else learns how to do it to follow them. Um, so it's a big problem. Companies that have uh, COBOL are looking for employees and of course this is a job opportunity for people. I think that they will have a secure job and they'll make more money because they know a, a language that not a lot of people know at this time that are you know, under 50 or 60. Well, that's one of the things that Bob, my ex-husband, said is that um, they're looking for COBOL um, technicians because they ran everybody off thinking that all this new computer system and everything else is, they didn't need them anymore. And You're now right. they're finding they have to have them in order to make one, a better understanding of how the machine works, but more importantly, to be able to tell it to do the things that it needs it to do. Right. So, um, see what you created? <laughs> I know. And you know, in 1966, I believe it was, I retired from the Navy, but they called me back because they needed me to standardize COBOL for the Navy. So I went back even after I was retired. Wow. And, you know, I did a lot of speaking during that time. Uh, many, many talks to people um, about computers and the future. And I even went back to my alma mater, Vassar, and spoke there. And, um, and again, I had quite a bit going on at that time. I mean, at one point... Um, I was on the cover of Time Magazine, and also, I went on that little TV show I called the Johnny Carson Show, and uh, that was a lot of fun. He's that, totally Johnny Carson or David Letterman? Me. Oh, David Letterman, you yeah. are right. It's yeah. David Letterman. Yeah. Kind of the same I get thing. mixed up, but I know those <laughs> boys were all like celebrities and big time to be on there with all the people who are acting and famous and rich and, but I was on there too. <laughs> well, you should have been, you have, you have changed the way that the computer system and the communication system of the computers um, have, have truly changed the world. So tell me about the award that you got in 1969. Um, the computer I got the, you're going to like this. I got the Computer Science Man of the Year Award. <laughs> I thought that was pretty interesting. And uh, that same, around that same time period, I got uh, to be a, a distinguished fellow at the British Computer Society, which was quite an honor. And, um, you know, but by, you know, 1983, I was promoted to be Rear Admiral, and I <laughs> that really catapulted me into being kind of a, a celebrity at the time, which was kind of funny to me because, you know, I'm not uh, pretty or cute or rich or any of those things, but I did go to the White House. President Reagan had me to the White House, and you know what I said to him? Tell me. I said, I'm older than you are. <laughs> yeah. That's but really cute. I, there was just all, there's just so many awards and accomplishments. It's just embarrassing to talk about um, because there were just so many. But I, um, you know, I was grateful for them. And, you know, in later in life, what's kind of funny is that, um, I was interviewed and they asked me what my greatest accomplishment in life was. Um, and I thought about saying it was the compiler because that was a big one. But in reality, I said, you know, it's teaching. Now, remember when I said yeah. I didn't want to teach school? Uh -huh. But I can just see those faces and feel the experience of those young people that I trained and see what they were doing. And I gave them my full attention when I was working with them. Uh, I wanted to be a role model 
for those young, eager minds, especially the women. And you know what they called me? Tell me. The science hero. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was kind of cute. That is very cute. But I, I think it's interesting, Grace, that here years and years ago you said, I didn't want to teach. And yet, yeah. in reality, you taught every day you worked on the computers. You taught every yeah. day with the Navy. You and, are right. And so it's all about effective communication. It just may look different not standing in front of a, a classroom. But, you know, I think that the blessing that you were gifted with in this life is truly that you were a teacher. You were a teacher of the the world of the unknown that you saw down the road that was going to be so required in the transformative efforts of engineering, of science, in mathematics, mathematics. And, in, and in creativity, or even in the building of anything. Yes. Um, and so you know, I, we're all creative. We're all creative. We're born creative. But yes. some people just learn to... Uh, apply it and they kind of find their space their their niche or whatever you might want to call it um you know i i have a quote that uh, many have uh, put in books and things and the, the quote is uh, a ship in port is safe but that is not what ships are for sail out to sea and do good things that's yeah. something that i said years ago and i think it uh, is applicable here well and while we're talking about ships i have I to was tell just you gonna say yeah they named a destroyer after me it's called what does that tell you about you <laughs> what does that tell you about you the destroyer well, they called it they called it Amazing Grace, like after that little song. Yeah. You know, and after me. But um, I, it was the second ship ever to be named after a woman. That's incredible. That is really incredible. And, <laughs> and one of the, let's see, 2009 as part of a major reorganization of the Office of Naval Intelligence. Yes. Uh, one of the four divisions was the Grace Hopper Information Service Center. That's right. The other being the John F. Kennedy Irregular Warfare Center, the Nimitz Operational Intelligence Center, and the Farragut Technical Analysis Center. You know, that's, that's incredible. And you're all part of that. But I will tell you that maybe somewhere in history we need to change your uh, 1969 award uh, to Computer Science Woman of the Year. That would be good. <laughs> they, uh, they may be doing it here sometime soon because yeah. uh, things are, are changing uh, not only in the world of science and mathematics, but across the board in your world and in your culture today. That's exactly right. So are you familiar with something that was created in your name which is the Grace Hopper Celebration. It's a 20, this is the 20th anniversary this year, which is the world's largest gathering of women technologists. And it's produced by the Anita B organization. And this year's uh, celebration, which will be online, will be September of 2020. And it's all because of what you created and these, this organization has expanded that to enhance women in the world of technology. So you didn't just create computers, Grace. You didn't just teach students. You planted seeds in the lives of those students that then took it greater at, to a greater level, which has now been celebrated after 20 years. So if well, you didn't know that, you need to embrace that honor. Oh, thank you. Uh, I have a faint recollection of it, or a recollection of it, but I, uh, it's nice to uh, to hear it and know that. And I, I, I'm, I'm proud that there's women in that group and 
and that they're pushing forward for new um, new new creative things in the world yeah absolutely you know, a lot happened uh, during my lifetime it happened after I retired um, it's still happening in some ways but basically you know I lived out my last years in Arlington Virginia and I died in my sleep in 1992 at 85 years old you know thank you grace for coming back to be with us and i just can't thank you enough for the gifts not only to the history of what you created but the ongoing seeds that you planted and the difference that you're making so with that i want to tell you that grace's life coach is somebody that i think follows in many of the same footsteps but maybe a little bit more creatively a little bit different plane but still being a communicator and speaking common languages is something that her life coach is all about. And so I'd like to introduce you to Arlen Hughes. <laughs> Hello. I've got to get my hat off and uh, all that of my uh, glasses so I can now be uh, Arlen with uh, purple hair and... Uh, <laughs> You know, so, anyway, you are, this was kind of uh, fun to do this, and I've uh, enjoyed it. Well, again, as I said to you in our conversations earlier, there's a lot of commonality between, commonality between you and Grace, and that is, I think you're both feminist. I think you're both very much uh, passionate about... Um, the gifts that you've been given, but more importantly, the changes that you've made. And in looking at your bio, um, I thought it was interesting that you two are from Oklahoma. Um, <laughs> I had to giggle at your bio when it said you were from a small town that she always referenced as a peak in a plum town, which meant peak around the corner and you're plum out of, plum town. Out of town. I just think that's <laughs> priceless. I'm going to have to remember that one. But, um, you know, I had to also giggle when it came down to you being a home economic teacher and that you were going to do this, you know, family thing with children and husband and all that. And you were the top Tupperware salesperson, which, you know, made me flashback when I read that because I thought, oh, boy, boy, can I ever remember that? And I'm only four years younger than you. So, you know, I really can relate to that era. And obviously you know, the changes that occurred in your life, the desires that you had, um, was not necessarily to just be in the world of real estate, which you were in for 40 years, but you really wanted to do something um, grander, which I think you have done. You were a school teacher, a secondary school teacher um, for quite some time, but it didn't necessarily support you financially but it never supported what I see in your bio as your world dream of seeing all the parts of the world, which, you know, God bless your dad for giving you the whole collection of the world book of encyclopedias. Cause I have and, to tell the you globe and the globe and the globe. But I also have to tell you that I think that we're missing not giving that to our children nowadays because it has a different kind of history. It has the root history of life. And so you know, if you were able to research different parts of the country you wanted to travel to out of the encyclopedia and go, then you added so much more of the story as you came back to live your life. Um, kind of funny, my, uh, when I started traveling and uh, I said, I'm going to go around the world and they went, oh, isn't that cute? She thinks she's going to go around the world, but uh, I got to I got to heading in that direction around the world. And my dad said, you know, you have these encyclopedias in this globe, so you can get a lot of information. You don't have to go. <laughs> but the but gift of course, is experiencing I had to go. Yeah, I get it. I want the interpersonal relationship more than, uh, than just the books and the, the visual of the planet. I wanted the, the personal contact with the people. It's the cultural differences. 
It's the lifestyle. I, I've traveled a lot of places around the world as well. And, you know, I come back and, you know, at different times I've shared stories with my son with different pictures. And, and I just said, you have to get down on their level to understand their culture and really appreciate their culture. My mom always used to say, you know, whatever their, their um, way of life is, you need to flow with that in order to really understand it. Well, there were a couple of times I did flow with it. I'm glad nobody else <laughs> knew I was over there. But, um, you know, the gift is, you know, you're accepted in all these countries and they're as interested in you as you are of them. But that's part of the education. That's part of the gift that we give when we come back and share it with those that want those little seeds that have been planted. And the And some of these people will never go outside the United States, much less outside of their own little community. Um, so I'm going to shift gears for a minute and ask you to tell me about your art business, the two-legged fiesta. <laughs> what is that? Well, in uh, 2008, um, we had a downturn in the economy. And in real estate, I'd been through a few. So my thing was, instead of killing yourself trying to make the same amount of money, just live on your savings a while and do some of the things you've been wanting to get done. Kind of like, you know, a lockdown for myself, but the lockdown was going out. I said, from this point on in my life, and I was in my 60s, there is nothing that I'm going to do that is not creative, that doesn't uh, educate me, uh, feed me in some way so I can be of service to other people and be of service to myself to make uh, uh, growth and different uh, uh, different ways of doing things. Thinking out, of, <clears throat> excuse me, thinking out of the box, for instance. <clears throat> and I I met a woman who needed one more person in her art class to make the class at Laguna Gloria. And I said, well, I'll help you out. I'll do it. But I'm terrible. I can't draw. And she said, you don't have to draw to paint. And it was like, really? So I uh, started painting. And at the end of that class, she said, uh, you need to keep painting. So I have a big with 100 pieces of art. And I sold 17 pieces. And, and then it just kind of catapulted from there. I began to write. I, um, you know, uh, put together a book of women's stories, women from the 60s, now in their 60s, who chose not to have children because we were the first generation of women who had that choice. So I put together that book, and then um, I did uh, stage shows in Austin, uh, also in Canada and Mexico and New York City, and kind of did my storytelling about what my life had been like and my perspective of how things had changed from being a wife, homemaker, and mother, the best there was ever going to be, with a degree in home economics, how much better can it get, to a whole different uh, way of uh, doing things. And um, so, it just everything I do has a creative bent. My house was on the Keep Austin Weird Tour. Uh, I have an art car. It's uh, The car is decorated with bananas on it and all kinds of things. <laughs> so... That's just kind of where I went, and it's been fun for me, and that's what I'm going to continue to do till I can't do it anymore. Well, so you also have written, um, let's see. <coughs> yeah, yeah you, uh, you were featured in a documentary film named Love in the 60s, which is what you were just talking about. Right. Uh, and that's in the local library in Austin as well as Amazon. Yes. Um, yes, on the Amazon Amazon streaming. Okay. Uh, the book is on Amazon, Kid Me Not, Stories of Women from the 60s Now in Their 60s. And then the film is also on um, Prime Video. Okay, great. And the other thing that I think was very interesting is that CBS Morning News called you the queen of weird in Austin. And so what were they interviewing you for that they gave you that great title? 
Well, um, I had kind of a uh, unusual art artistic house with lots of things out in the yard at the corner of Enfield and Mopac Access Road. And I started having some issues with my knees and I lived in a two-story house, so I decided to move and I moved downtown on North Congress, two blocks south of the Capitol in one of those old buildings. And I had a pet pig and an art car and so I moved downtown with the pig and the art car. But evidently, the radio, the news stations had a lot of calls wondering, what's happened with that house? The person's gone. The pig's not in the backyard. My kids are crying. Uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so they did a little feature uh, thing. And um, in the local CBS news, and call me the queen of weird, but... Bill Geist with CBS Sunday Morning News uh, came and did a story of which I was included with the car and the pig and the house. And um, we had done a show at Zach Scott, an original show called Keeping It Weird. And uh, I was the only person in the show that was a, char a character that played myself. <laughs> oh, how wonderful. And uh, we actually had the art car drive on stage at the Zach Scott Theater. It was quite a production. Well, while doing my own investigation on you, Miss Hughes, oh I also got to see the video having to do with what you do with millennials, which I will tell you, that was very, very creative, very informative, and you know, you need to continue doing more of that because I think that those are the kinds of conversations that aren't happening. And um, we need to share that wisdom that um, we're given as we get older. I think that once you turn 60, you, you have a certain right to uh, say, I have earned my keep and I can say what I want. <laughs> and you do say it very creatively, but more importantly, um, I think that you say it to the level that they really can grasp what you're talking about, but more importantly, take some responsibility in what you left as a message. And I hope that you will continue doing that because I think that you're still a teacher, no different than Grace. Um, you are, you know, I think that the gift of, of being a queen of weird in Austin um, sets you different from everybody else because you're not afraid to be who you are. You're very transparent. You're very um, artistic. You remind me in some ways of my mother being as artistic. Um, but at the same time, you're unique. And, and I think that when you and I got to talking about doing grace and me taking a look at her bio and taking a look at your bio and realizing that the gifts that you bring as women it doesn't have to be that you get the naval accommodations and the certifications from Washington, but you are out there. You are doing something that says, be who you are, be creative, create history as you live, but share that with those that don't know that history. And I think that's what's happened. And it's sad, but I think that's what's happened to so many people that have died and their story has never been told. That's, the encyclopedia of history. And that's the history we missed yes. because they somehow for whatever reason didn't tell it or it wasn't available or it got destroyed or any number of things. So that's exactly uh, yes, right. I think it's important to um, uh, live the legacy. I think in my generation that I've seen more change than any other generation in history. I mean, remember I had a party line telephone Yep. And then we thought it was a miracle that I had a telephone in my car when I was a realtor. And now we have these devices that we use morning, noon, and night. And it's, um, yeah, I've seen a lot of change, a lot of change in the culture, a lot of change in how we live and how we are. And I think millennials um, look to women in our generation for guidance because we are women that came up in a different way. We are not their mothers. Right. Um, you know, and also when we were talking about wisdom, because we do have a lot of wisdom from our experiences being around for a while, 
is that um, I have coined this term, uh, the wisdom generation, and um, that's what I reference myself as, or being a part of now, the wisdom generation, and it seems kind of like a simple term, but I started using it, and people said, where did you get that? I've never heard of that. And I think that's a great term. So we researched it, and then they wrote an article on me as coining the wisdom generation, uh, ge generation term. So <laughs> you just never know. If you're just out there and you're kind of being a part of everything, things just happen. I have very rarely just set a goal and said, I'm going there, and I'm not stopping and looking in either direction. I'm going there. I just kind of say, well, there's something. I think I'll do that until I don't do that anymore and until I go a different direction. Uh, well, so. you know, that's, that's how we create history. <laughs> yes. But that's also how you create art. Your art teacher said you don't need to know how to draw to paint. To paint. You don't have to have all the tools to be grace. You don't have to have all the tools to be you. You just mm -hmm. have to utilize what you do have and develop it. And one of the things I talk to younger women about, uh, uh, I do some life coaching with them, but sometimes I'm just talking to them. And I just say you have to remain curious about everything. And that's what Grace Hopper did. Yes. She was curious about everything, even other than science and mathematics. And uh, that's where all the rich stuff comes from, is just having, as, as my mother used to say, that everyone's got a finger in every pie. <laughs> you ever heard that term? Yes, I have. I have. So I think that's important. We need to have a finger in every pie, and Grace Hopper certainly did, and it um, catapulted her into uh, being uh, quite the legend. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> I can't thank you enough for um, coming and having a conversation, not only about Grace, but about um, your gifts as well. Um, I do believe that the title Speaking a Common Language is exactly what we've just done. Um, it doesn't have to be the early 1900s. It can be um, taking the 1900s and coming forth, realizing there's so much relationship there that we need to continue expanding. And it's just like the whole COBOL. Um, it's having to expand again, and so they're having to bring people in that know that. So... Um, <laughs> Have you got anything else you'd like to share before we wrap this up? Did we get, uh, did everybody get to see the, um, we're going to, well, there you go. We're going to show that. It doesn't show up on the screen, but there you go. Now it does. But um, we're going to show that in the, okay. in the podcast itself, along with not only the picture of Grace, but also of you and your car. I think that's um, <laughs> something that we need to put in here for color. Um, and also, we will list your um, connections for people to be able to go to your website and learn more about who you are and your gifts. Um, and so I want to say thank you not only to the women um, historical group that is watching this, but also all the people that are watching this, is that we want you to know that no different than Arlen and no different than me, um, we do want to give messages. We do want to teach. We do want to share history. And um, we're hoping that we've done even a small portion of that in honoring Grace. So um, I thank you, Life Coach, for bringing Grace back into the uh, fold. Uh, thank you. And I am sure that she is equally as great grateful for what you did today. <laughs> um, and so with that, I want to share a little bit about information for those women that are watching this as well because I think it's important to understand where I come from in the efforts of bringing in not only Grace but also Erilyn to um, inform and that is that I have done past podcasts with Dr. Scott Becker and Lisa Tingle who are both musicians here in Austin but we did a gastro uh, podcast on the COVID-19 and the importance of just taking care of yourself. We also did one having to do with Trapped at Home with the Hayes Caldwell Women's Shelter. Again, it's an opportunity for us to realize as a community the difference we can make and the need, especially in the, the quarantine, to connect with people, 
to be online, to be on the phone, to connect to your neighbors. I also did one having to do with David Rapella, and if no one knows who that is, they can go on my website or they can go on David's because this 82-year-old man is as much a gift as you and Grace for the gifts that he's given in his writings and the teachings about love. And then I did one with Angela Smith, which is part of this organization with the Women, the History Women's Organization, having to do with Nikola Tesla. And look at Nikola Tesla, who Ooh. is now in the, in the efforts of science and the direction of how he changed the course of history. Um, and then last but not least, it was done by my audio, audio engineer, the interview with me and him having to do with my background, but more importantly, my desire to be informed, to inform, and to inspire. So with that, I want to say to all, thank you for being here today. Erilyn, thank you so much for the gifts that you are. Um, I do not want to disconnect from you. I want to definitely be in your little scope of friends. Um, and Grace Hopper, I thank you as well for your gifts. And may we continue to honor all women that make a difference in this world. So thank you. Our time is up. Thank you for yours. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for everything that you've contributed to this. Well, thank you, dear. You are awesome. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, dear. You're listening to Quite Honest with Sarah Bush and David Drupella. For more content, videos, and information, visit us on the web at aquietplace.net or go to our YouTube channel and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications. You can also find David Trapella and Sarah Bush on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And visit Sarah at her website, sarahbush.net.